0: Good morning, church family. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles or on your device to Philippians chapter 4. It's in the Old Testament, second half of the book. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking today at chapter 4, specifically verses 4 through 7, and an even greater focus on 6 and 7. Anyone here ever get stressed out? Ever? anyone here ever get anxious? I know some of us are a little anxious about looking at our bank account come tomorrow because Black Friday was not kind to us, and Cyber Monday isn't looking any better. Man, those deals and all the emails I got yesterday, let me tell you. Some of us are a little more concerned with how much we ate over the past three or four days, and and we're not looking too kindly at that scale. We get a little anxious, maybe. And yet others are here, and they don't care about any of that, but they know that they barely survived Thanksgiving with difficult people, and Christmas is right around the corner. And those difficult people that they're commanded to love, whether by blood or marriage or the fact that we're covenanted together, right, because that happens, Christmas is around the corner, and we're going to need to be around them, and it's not going to be pleasant. We love them, but they're so hard to be around, and so... For real, we feel anxious and our our butterflies are all over our stomach because we got to do it again. We got to do it again. You know, we, we experience all sorts of anxiety. Not all anxiety is the same. Some is actually good. Now, deacons, if I get out of line, you feel free to tackle me if you need to. Not all anxiety is bad or even sinful. Think about the anxiety you feel if you ever encounter a wild animal, a dangerous animal, or if you step too close to the edge. That feeling you feel is a good one from God that's designed to save your skin. Turn and flee from danger. That's a good gift from God. That is a good type of anxiety. Another type of anxiety that some of us might face is typically what we think of as clinical anxiety. I don't know if you knew this or not, but we live in the historically paramount point of anxiety in the course of human history, and that was before the pandemic. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting around 40 million adults. That's one in five. Look around. You're in good company. Brothers and sisters, you are seen and you are heard. You are welcome here. The global World Health Organization says that globally, there are 300 million people who suffer from an anxiety disorder. And this is a psychological, physiological malfunction that has become both disordered and debilitating. So whether it's a generalized anxiety disorder, a panic disorder, or a social anxiety, if you have that, you should seek counsel from a pastor or a counselor or your physician. This sort of anxiety isn't necessarily one that we would call sinful. It's a result of living in a post-Genesis 3 world where we're broken. The, the environment is crazy and our bodies don't do what they were designed to do in the garden. So we suffer from that type of anxiety. But then yet we have other forms of anxiety that are either the result of us sinning or are in and of themselves Sinful. Clearly different from everything else. Think about Proverbs 28.1 that says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Think about the individual who's coddling a secret sin that no one knows about. Think about the husband or wife that is cheating. Think about the individual who's gambled away their life savings or the family's nest egg. Everywhere they go, with every waking moment, and even the ones when they're trying to sleep is plagued and tormented by the fact that someone's going to find out. And they've brought this feeling of anxiety, this sinful anxiety, on themselves because they can't control or because they're hiding sin. That's a different kind of anxiety than the ones that we might have been born with or the ones if we encounter a mountain lion in the wilderness or something like that. You see, that sinful sort of anxiety, like a steel-forged wood-splitting mall, violently rips us apart from the presence of our Heavenly Father, our Creator, and we're left falling. And the further we fall from God, the less we trust in His goodness and His grace, which leaves us trying to fix a broken pile of wood chips on our own. This is the type of anxiety that we're talking about today. But there is an answer to anxiety, and it's found in Advent. The Advent is what we call the season leading up towards Christmas, where we have four weeks leading up to Christmas, where, in a sense, we're kind of reenacting and participating in thousands of years of God's people looking forward to the day when Messiah would come. When salvation would be realized in the work of Jesus. That's literally what Advent means. Coming. Paul, who wrote Philippians, which is where we're at today in the text, Philippians chapter 4, Paul knew that Advent had an answer to anxiety. And so he's writing a letter, and as his closing thoughts, one of the things that he wants so desperately for the Philippian church to remember, because it's one of the last things he says, so that's going to stick with him for a little bit. He wants them to remember that there is promise in the gospel. This church faced persecution on the outside, and a little bit of turmoil on the inside. There was a little bit of a rift if you read a couple verses above. There's some infighting maybe, a little bit of a, a potential you know, thread coming loose at the seam. What's going to happen? Will it unravel? And Paul knows this, and so he's writing these inspired words. And he says in chapter 4, verse 4, "'Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice.'" absolutely, amen. The great reformer, Martin Luther, once was so sorely vexed, so stricken with turmoil over his own sinfulness, everything that was going on in the world around him, and the, the, the plagues that were besetting the church, all of the trials that the church was going through, that he was so anxiety-ridden and filled with stress. And one day, he He comes out of the bedroom, and his wife, Katharina, is dressed in mourning, all black. And Martin Luther asks her, Katie, who died? And she said, don't you know? Have you not heard? God is dead. You can imagine Luther's surprise. What on earth are you talking about, dear? God is not dead. He is surely alive and will live on through all eternity. Is that really true, dear? Is that really true? Is God still alive? Of course it is. This is the Alpha and the Omega. He is immortal. God cannot die. And Katie responded, and yet, and yet you're so hopeless. You're so torn up in knots. You're so discouraged. And in that moment, Luther realized the contradiction between his beliefs and his behavior. You see, what he believed up here didn't correspond with what was going on in here. There was a little bit of a shift or a digression. And so he repented and he resolved his anxiety. And like Luther then and the Philippian church that Paul was writing to, we're in the same boat. We know stuff up here but our heart has not been fully impacted the way it ought to be. We forget stuff. We're weak. We're sinful. And so Paul lets us know today, just after Thanksgiving 2022, just like he did the Philippian church way back when, there is promise and hope in the gospel. He tells us this. Because the Lord is at hand, we should be anxious for nothing. Which is just a positive way of saying, don't be anxious. But instead, he's phrasing it in a different way. Be anxious for nothing. That's it. That's the sermon. So if there's anyone here who's a little bit anxious, that maybe, what if the baby gets sick? Or what if I get a phone call and have to leave before I find out what anxiety is uh, going to be told from Advent? What is Advent answer to anxiety? Here's the answer. It's Jesus. That's the answer to anxiety that we find in Advent. It always was Jesus. It is Jesus now, and it will always be Jesus. That is Advent's answer to anxiety. And yet, you know just as well as I do that it makes sense up here, but how do I convince my heart? What does it even look like if I were to believe that in such a way that it impacted my life? What would it look like if I obeyed that? Well, for starters, Paul tells us that we're going to pray with thanksgiving for everything. You can see that here in verse 6. Paul tells us, Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. He's giving us a command. He's giving us a command that Jesus already gave us in Luke chapter 12 when Christ says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now the clearly defined thing here, and it's so important that we get this, is that this is not advice. This is not a suggestion. This isn't something that you can either take and apply or leave and ignore. This is a command from on high. These are your marching orders. Be anxious for nothing and pray with thanksgiving for everything and in all situations. But God's not being angry with us right now. Paul's not angry. This is really a loving and amazing challenge. It's an opportunity. It's a command to be fearless. When you're anxious, you're also fearing something. You might not know what it is, but when you're feeling anxiety, you're also fearing something, and you're commanded by your loving heavenly Father to be fearless despite everything that's going on in your world. Kind of like kind of like mom and dad in the deep end of the pool, right? You got junior up here on the ledge. Jump. We're not. Jump and I will catch you. Right? And yet yet Junior's on the ledge, eight foot deep. Junior's there. Wow, it must be really tall. Junior's there, and he's frozen in fear. You could have an entire uh, uh, butterfly exhibit in this kid's stomach. He is frozen and so anxious of, what if dad doesn't catch me? What if I jump too short? What if I jump too far? What if I drown? What if I die? What if I cough up water? All of these things that could potentially go wrong. And He's frozen. And like our spiritual big brother, Paul says, jump. Dad's right there and he's going to catch you. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. The command is not a rebuke, but an encouraging order to be fearless despite present difficulties. The Philippian church would have understood this. They understood this to mean that God is ever present with them through the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is coming again. When Paul says the Lord is at hand, in one sense, he very truly means he's already here. He came, he died, he conquered. Put that on a t-shirt. He came, he died, he conquered. He's risen, he's up in heaven, but we have the very same spirit that Christ performed his miracles with. We have inside of us. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. And yet, In a very different but very real sense, Paul means the Lord is coming again. He has not left us. He is with us in the brokenness and and throughout all of the turmoil in life. God is here with us. The Lord is at hand. So Paul reminds them of the Advent that's already been accomplished and the Advent season in which they live. And Paul tells us that instead of being anxious, that we should pray in all situations. And it's interesting that that would be a solution, right? That prayer would somehow fix me and my anxiety because we know there's no special incantations recorded in Scripture that will just, poof, make my anxiety disappear. Although I wish there were. But you know, Paul's not the only one who's told us not to be anxious and to pray. First Peter 5, 7 says that we're to cast all of our anxieties on him, being God, because he cares for us. So what's so special about this prayer here? Like, if there's no specific words that I can recite, I can't follow a recipe and turn out perfect cookies, how do I get rid of this anxiety? What is prayer actually doing here? Well, at, at one level, the very basic level of prayer is man initiating conversation with the divine. That's what prayer is. It's us creating a conversation with God. Supplication is us asking God for stuff. I can praise God all day long, and that would be a prayer. And then a prayer of supplication is me asking God for help. And when we pray, the Lord is near to us. Psalm one forty-five eighteen says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. And throughout the history of mankind, especially recorded for us in the scriptures, we see time and again, men and women crying out to God in both distress and great joy, asking for both spiritual needs and physical needs, trying to figure out and make sense of everything that's going on in their life. When they are lost and confused, when they are elated and desperately hopeless, they pray to God. And the Psalms say, those who call upon the Lord, the Lord will be near. Now, if we take a grander look at prayer, so we take that box, just shift it just a little bit and look at prayer from a slightly different angle. Paul, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if this is too close. Hopefully that's better. We'll work through it. But another thing that we can think about of when, in terms of prayer is the fact that prayer is the truest test of someone's faith. Prayer is the truest test of someone's faith. How else would you explain someone who has exhausted all humanly possible solutions to a problem they're facing, and then crying out to an invisible deity that they've never met? Like, do you know how crazy that sounds to the world? That, that you would pray for anything, whether it's where to go to college, how to spend your money, or what to do with your quote-unquote free time, that you would pray for anything just goes to show how unintellectual and simple-minded you are as Christians according to the world. I'm really, really happy that Paul tells us that, that the faith that we're about to receive when we cry out for help is supernatural, that it transcends the human mind, because if not, we'd all think that we were going crazy. You see, when we are praying, we are representing our complete and utter dependence on God and our humility. Think about it. No one here would ever say, hey, guess what? I really love telling people How little I have. I love telling people what I don't know. I love admitting what I'm terrible at and what I desperately need help on if I'm ever gonna get this project done. No one would ever say that. You know, our pride at best would probably keep us from admitting some of those things, and it kind of makes us cringe at the idea of being seen as less than in front of our peers or people that we want to impress. So we might mask our insufficiencies. But at worst, our pride gets in the way and prevents us from obeying the scripture where we are supposed to love one another and bear one another's burdens. And like we've talked about this summer in the One Another series, you can't possibly know what one another is struggling with unless you as one another tell someone what you're struggling with. So when times are tight, or you've got a project that you just can't figure out on your own, if you cry out to God for help, or you're wrestling with anxiety and you ask God to help you with this, to be comforted and to give you peace, he's going to be near you, and your prayer displays your humility because you're acknowledging you can't do this alone. But isn't that what our anxiety tells us? If your anxiety is anything like mine, and let's just pretend for a minute that we all have it because we probably do in different seasons of life, your anxiety likely tells you you're alone. They will never understand you. If they really knew you, they would like you even less than they already do. You're not enough. How dare you even think that anyone else would care about you can't control this, and no one else cares enough to help you try to fix your problems. But our prayer of humility, trusting in our good God, will help us with this because we certainly are not alone, but we cannot do anything on our own. There's a big difference there. We're not alone. Take a look around this room, folks. This is a family reunion every Sunday. You've got 200 people here who, by my guess, would love if you called them or texted them and said, hey, I'm struggling. Will you pray for me? Will you pray with me? Hey, man, can we go for a walk and have a talk? My kids are wild in and out, and I I have no answers. Can somebody, one of you, two, three, four folks, pray with me and for me that God would help me? Because thinking about how I'm going to fix all of this, I'm losing sleep. I can't even right now. There's not enough parenting books. There's not enough Psalms to like, fix this problem. I need help. And would you please join me in that fight? Because right now I'm losing so much sleep over all of the things going on in my life that no one else knows about. We've got so many people here that are itching and waiting to help. We are not alone. Corey Tenboom, famed Christian author, had several wise thoughts regarding anxiety and worry. She said, look around and be distressed. Look inside and be depressed. Look at Jesus and be at rest. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. When we pray to God, we are acknowledging and displaying our humility and our complete and utter dependence on God, and it's beautiful. Think about the lost sinner who for the first time repents to God and they receive eternal salvation in Christ Jesus. What an utter display of helplessness because they finally come to the ends of themselves and they realize, I can't do this. I've got nothing. I've got nothing that would ever merit or earn salvation and yet they receive it anyway. And when that sinner confesses their sins, they're not only acknowledging their own sinfulness, they're also acknowledging their own insufficiency, their own inability to do anything in and of themselves to earn or work out salvation. They have no ability to save themselves, which is why Jesus came the first time. Psalm 62, 8 says, to trust God at all times and to pour out our heart before Him. You know, our fears, our anxiety, those are personal problems. So it only makes sense that we should take them to the person, the one who is powerful and strong, the one who can do something about it, the one who both loves us and listens to us, the one who is good and generous, the one who will do. What needs to be done to work out his will in our lives? You know, you don't thank your employer when you get that paycheck. You've earned it. You put in your time, you upheld your end of the contract. That is what is owed to you. You don't say thank you to your employer. I'm not saying you can't, I'm just saying you don't because you don't need to. They certainly don't thank you for the work, you're just doing your job. You get the paycheck, that's the agreement. when it comes to God, he owes you nothing, right? Because you've earned nothing. You haven't put in your time. You haven't upheld your end of the contract. If anything, you've broken it repeatedly. But God is so loving and so amazing that he sent the Messiah the promised child of which we have the season advent as we look again at what he's already done when he came the first time and also at the time when he will come again. He sent his only begotten son to die and pay the penalty that you and I both deserve so that we could have eternal life if we cry out in repentance and faith. That is amazing. And we absolutely can and we absolutely must approach God with a permanent heart posture of gratitude, one in which we're never coming to God saying, look right here. This is what I've done. This is what you're supposed to do now. So take this anxiety away. That's not how we approach God. We come to God saying, I'm a mess. I'm freaking out all the time. There is so much in my life that I can't control that I desperately need power over. At least I keep telling myself I need power so that I can feel comfortable and safe and content and happy again. I need some answers, and I need this fixed now. But instead, we approach God with a heart that is essentially on our hands and knees with our face looking down saying, God, I deserve nothing. But in your infinite love and mercy for me, would you please shower me with mercy and grace? Would you please help me to be content and have peace and to not work myself up over all of these things that I can't control? Could you please help me to have faith that what you're doing, as painful as it is, as much as I don't like it, as much as I just want it gone, would you please, please help me to trust in your goodness? Would you please help me to see how good you are right now? I don't deserve anything, but I love you and I trust you. Please help me to love you and trust you more. No matter what life throws at us, we have to remember, as cliche as it is, that our best day as an unbeliever pales in comparison to our worst day as a saved, born-again child of the king. That's true, and you can take it to the bank. When you shift your thinking from I am owed something because I have done something to, oh, wow, I don't deserve anything. but look what he's given me. I have Jesus Christ. I have a future home in heaven. And I've got 200 people any given day that love me and pray for me. Then we know we can have real peace. And if there's someone here who does not have that peace, who's never cried out to Jesus, if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never cried out and confessed, I am a sinner and I can do nothing to save myself, God, please have mercy on me. I invite you to do that today. And if you pray and ask God to forgive you, he is just and faithful to do so. And then you will be in Christ and Christ will be in you. In 1689, Gilbert Burnett was appointed Bishop of Salisbury and his habit was to visit each of the parishes annually. And as he's walking about the countryside, he approaches one of the worst houses, if you can even call it that, one of the worst abodes you can ever imagine. And he heard such the strangest, most peculiar noise ever. He heard a sweet song of thanksgiving and praise to God on high. And as he approached the abode a little bit closer, he smeared off some dust and peeked in the window. And what did he see? Small, frail woman living in abject poverty. And on a little stool before her, she had nothing but a piece of black bread and cold water. And with arms and eyes lifted up towards her God, she said, What? What? All of this in Jesus Christ too? She could have poured out her heart for days with all that she had been through to arrive at that point. She could have lamented for hours on end with all of the things that she was struggling with from a human perspective. The fear, the doubt, the anxiety, the the not knowing of when or where her next meal would come from. Instead, she praised her creator. She was humble and utterly dependent on God. He has provided our daily bread, but he has given us Christ. The Bible tells us that every single one of our prayers finds their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that we are benefactors. We are heirs with the son, that we get full claim to the family inheritance that the Father who owns all the cattle on a thousand hills, that everything is ours, that we will rule with Him in the end times, that everything that was owed to the firstborn, as the Philippians would have understood it, that's ours. That is our possession. We will rule with Christ. Not only did He come to die the first time at Calvary and then to be resurrected and return to heaven, but He's coming again. And he's coming for you. And he's coming for you. And he's coming for you fellas here in the front. And he's coming for me. By the grace of God, he's leaving heaven again to rescue us. Until then, as we wait, we should continually count our blessings and say, What? All of this and Jesus Christ too? So, brothers and sisters, if we desire to be anxious for nothing in all of our situations, we're going to pray with thanksgiving to God. We're going to let our requests be made known to Him. And you might be thinking, okay, I understand that. It shows that I'm humble. It shows that I'm dependent. But again, there's no magic words here. There's no pixie dust. How do I get rid of this anxiety? What does prayer do? Because I'm a type A personality, and I need to see how this works. If that's you, let's keep reading. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God. Paul lays this out in a cause and effect situation. Meaning, if you do this, what's this? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. If you do this, then you receive this. Verse 7. And the peace of God. As we submit our circumstances, as we submit our finances, as we submit our relationships to God. At the foot of the cross, he promises us his peace, and his peace will guard our hearts and our minds as we remain in Christ. You can get peace if you want it. If you don't want to go to God, you can get peace a different way. Some of you know this because occasionally you're checking yourself out in the mirror and you see, I got a new mole. It's kind of funky. So you go to a doctor and you hope for peace. And after they do a biopsy, they give you peace and they say, it's benign. It is not cancerous. You're good to go. Live a long and happy life. But that peace disappears in the snap of a finger when the phone rings. And they say that someone else wanted to get a second opinion because they just weren't quite sure. And now they'd like you to come in on Thursday to discuss your next steps. You see, the origin of our peace matters immensely. If your peace this morning is found in your bank account, your 401k, your college degrees, your job title, if your peace is found in the fact that you own your home, or that your cars are running well right now, or that your kids are well-behaved and following the Lord, if your peace is found in people... You know, I kind of hate to break it to you, but uh, your peace is a dream. You can only whisper it. Your peace is so fragile that anything above a whisper, and it dissipates. Disappears like the fog on a sunny morning. It's gone. But the peace of God endures forever. And it's founded on his unchanging word, the word that he inspired, the word that he has preserved through the ages, the word that helps us understand who God is and how to love him and others. That's where our peace comes from. Our peace comes from the one who knows all things and controls all things and that says all things for our own good work together. That is an amazing statement that he knows everything and that everything that happens is working for our own good. That's a comforting thought, especially for those of us who are prone to battle anxiety. But but you see what else Paul says about this prayer and how God's peace is going to impact our life? He says that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. Now, the word here that we have translated guard is a military word. We don't need to get too technical, but just realize that the Apostle Paul is no stranger to jail cells and prison guards, right? We know this. So when Paul's using this terminology, he's being very specific, acutely aware of what it means and what it doesn't mean. So this word that we have translated as guard, it's a military word, and it means to protect by military guard to prevent a hostile invasion. And for all of us who've ever dealt with anxiety, we shake our head and say, yep, that sounds about right. A hostile invasion. There can be no peace unless there is war at least that's what we've been told and i'll add to it that there can be no guarding of something if there's no real incredible threat sure you can look at something you can check up on it you can even make sure it looks good but you can't guard it if there's no threat that anyone's coming to get it or do it harm but paul tells us that the peace of god will guard our hearts and our minds is it because anxiety does just that? It seeks to have a hostile takeover of all that we are, our thoughts, even messes with our prayers. But the peace of God will guard us and protect us. Imagine a castle and the approaching army is coming to attack, but the king's guards surround the entire castle. It's kind of what Paul's getting at here that your mind and your heart who you are as a Christian, will be protected, will be guarded by the Royal King's Guard from any hostile attack or any attempt at a takeover. Paul knows that we have a very real and present danger. The same enemy that was disrupting the Philippian church is the same enemy that's roaming around seeking to devour us. But this peace of God that we obtain through prayer and supplication protects us from these attacks. The peace of God is active. It doesn't just sit here, says, no, it's armed. It's going to go after. It's going to prevent anyone from making an attempt on us. And what I love most about what I've learned about the peace of God in my studies is that as we show our dependence on God through prayer and his peace guards us and protects us, we start to see that God is just at, or he's at work just as much in the valley as he is on the mountaintop. He doesn't abandon us. He is always with us in the fight. John Bunyan, who is most famously known for writing A Pilgrim's Progress, but he wrote another book called Holy War. Bunyan creates the picture of a city called Man's Soul, and it's representative of the soul of man. And then he has one of the main characters be Prince Emmanuel, and that's Jesus. And there's another character called Mr. God's Peace, and he's a special character. And Mr. God's Peace is in the town of Mansoul, and while he's there, he's on patrol to make sure that everything is good. He is guarding the town. And Bunyan writes that nothing was to be found but harmony, happiness, joy, and health as long as Mr. God's Peace maintained his office. But then we read in this book, Holy War, how the town, Mansoul, grieved Mr. God's peace, grieved Mr. Prince Emmanuel, and so Prince Emmanuel leaves, Mr. God's peace lays down his commission, and chaos ensues. And that's what happens when Christians battle anxiety. We, we, we stop seeing things, we're stop We're stopping the protection that God's peace offers us because we've kind of set that to the side, and instead we've started to play with and and wrestle with on our own the anxiety and fear that we're struggling with. And we are no longer, as it were, the confidence of his sovereignty. And then all of a sudden, God's peace doesn't function anymore, and we're left with troubled minds and troubled hearts playing around with all of our own broken pieces trying to put it all back together again. And it's a miserable spot to be in. But surely this is a very easy thing for us to understand that if we don't grieve Prince Emmanuel, instead we trust and obey and we pray out to him, we cry out for help, then Mr. God's peace will abide and man's soul will be at well. And that's something we must understand because all of us, I imagine, have a tendency to spiral when we start to dwell on anxiety or when we're confronted with circumstances and situations we just can't possibly control. Anxiety wants to conquer us, but Advent has an answer, and the answer is Jesus. And we find that in this time of year as we look again to the coming of Christ, the second Advent, and we remember the first Advent. Advent is a season both of laughter, feast, and family, and maybe for some longing and some some deep soul anguish because we look around and, and the whole world is groaning. Nothing is as it should be, and we desire for that day to come. The first time Christ came, he came as a frail human child. Fully God, yes, but a frail human child. He was vulnerable to Herod's sword, but he purchased, very decisively, he purchased salvation for all those that the Father would give him. And as we anticipate the second advent, where we really get a firm answer to anxiety, we remember that when Christ comes again, he's coming on a white horse with a crown on his head, fire in his eyes, and he's wielding a sword, and he will execute judgment on the enemies, and he's going to rescue us. But until then, as you wait upon the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father God, thank you, Lord, for meeting with us this morning. Father, we, we thank you for the advent that... Christ already came and he purchased our salvation, Lord, and we are so comforted and eternally grateful that he is coming again, that he has not forsaken us, he has not left us on our own, but that he is coming again to execute judgment and to restore us and to bring us with him. He's going to rescue us. Father God, I pray that we would take these words to heart and that when we are feeling anxious in the days and weeks and months to come, that you would remind us of these truths, that you are a good God who loves us, and that we are commanded to be fearless by praying and letting you know that we need help. And when we do that, Lord, that you will protect us and you will guard our hearts and minds. And we thank you for this promise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.